All right, y'all be seated. Again, welcome. If you're wondering what all these hearts are for up here, that comes from Summer Sports Camp. Uh, Jeff Wagner did a Devo with the kids and did an awesome job on our third night talking about how friendship is part of God's plan and together is better. And so we decided that looks so cool, uh, having all these little hearts up here from our kids that brought them up. We'd leave them up there for a little bit. Nathan, thank you for your example too. Cool example. Nobody yelled, how do you do that? Like when I do magic tricks, Olivia, where yet? <laughs> That's right. Anyway, y'all grab your Bible. Let's go to the book of Jonah. Uh, if you can't find it, it's real small. It's in there, the book of the 12, the minor prophets as we call them. And uh, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. And uh, you'll find it right there. And uh, we're going to jump in there today. Now, if you think of Jonah, probably all of us, whether we're biblically informed or not, probably think really quickly of just two things, right? It doesn't matter if you search the internet, if you search a local library, or if you search your own home, or even our children's wing out here. When we think of Jonah, we think of Jonah and a big fish. And that's great on some level, but as you'll soon discover, that's only just on a cursory level, okay. Because there's so much more to the story. In fact, I got on Amazon this week and just pulled up the top three books that came up when you search Jonah. And here's what comes up, a kid's story. Jonah with a fish, Jonah almost getting eaten by a fish, and then Jonah getting spit out by a fish. What's interesting about that is that's probably what all of us think about but the problem is, is that is not what the book of Jonah is about. I even looked in our little kid's Bible that we hand out, which is great. It's an amazing little Bible that we hand out when kids are born here. We do our baby Bible blessing. And I looked up the story of Jonah, and it was headed up, just like you would all think, Jonah and the big fish. Well, the big fish only shows up in two sentences in this whole story. And it's fine as a kid's story for it to kind of be this fun VBS tale and about a fish swallowing a man and, and all the cool things that we want to think about in that. But this story is, I hope you were here last week, and if you weren't, just a recap. This story is about so much more. This is not just a good kid's story. It is. But this is a story about God. The centerpiece and the main character in this story of Jonah is Yahweh, a God who is the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, abounding in steadfast love. And scripture is summed up in this story. And so if scripture is about God and Jonah sums up all of scripture, then this story helps us reveal the heart of God. So it's much more than just a kid's book. It is a masterful story for all stages and all ages. It is a brilliant and powerfully written story that the more you read it, the more you realize it's full of irony and humor and wit, and most of all, it is full of challenge. It is going to be today, you're going to see that this is a book that is much, much deeply at work on the heart's of the people who give it time. Because the more you read Jonah, the more you realize truths, not about just Jonah, 
but you actually start to hear truths about yourself. There's this uh, TV and movie uh, archetype or a trope, maybe even in books that appears. You all probably know this. It's like Al Horror story. It's, it's one of those stories that you tell around uh, campfires, scary ghost stories. It's not the guy with the, with the hook for an arm. It's the story of the young lady. You've probably heard this. It's a babysitter, a teenage girl's babysitting at home, and she's already put the kids to bed, and the parents are gone. And then the phone rings at home. And the scary story goes, the girl picks up the phone and she says hello and this scary voice on the other side goes, have you checked on the kids? And she thinks it's just her friends joking, so she laughs and she hangs up the phone. And then two or three more times, the guy calls back and she starts to get freaked out and he says the same thing in this horror story, this little trope, have you checked on the kids? Well, she gets scared and so she calls the police and she asks them to trace right? The phone call. And the police stay on the line. And I don't know how it all works technologically, but the story goes that the police stay on the line. And as they trace the call, the horrible news comes. And it says, the police tell them next time when the guy calls and he says, have you checked on the kids? The police give her this horrible news. The call is coming from inside the house. It's supposed to scare you, right? Now that is actually not the horror trope, not the scariness, but that is actually the point of this book. Jonah is going to do something to us as we read it. We're not only going to see the heart of God and how his heart calls us towards a new heart. Jonah is going to be a book that exposes some of the worst tendencies we have as human beings. It's a book that's going to get us to go, oh no, the bad guy's not out there. The bad guy is right here. This isn't a book about somebody else's tendencies that are sinful. This is a book about us going, the call is coming from inside the house. It's going to expose our small-mindedness and our hurtful thoughts that we have and our prejudice and our pride and our unforgiving stances that we hold over others and our inability to let God's grace flow from us to somebody else. Yes, Jonah is a story about God, but I want you to know that it's a story aimed at us. Let me tell you about the Lord, Jonah says, and let me expose some of the worst things about humanity. The call really is coming from inside the house. So protect your toes, if you will, this morning before we get started. But I would say open your heart. Let us open our heart to this this morning. And as we do so, let's ask for the Holy Spirit's guidance. Let's pray. Oh Lord, our hearts are hard. for many reasons. And we ask for you to come through the power of the Holy Spirit and soften us today. We're hardened by so many things. And we ask, Lord, that you come and change our hard hearts into hearts of flesh. And we lift up this church family 
And we continue to pray for other church families in town. Anywhere your name is being called on today, may people come to know you. May you overcome all of us today and show us your truth through this little, fun, humorous book called Jonah. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So we began last week with just opening up. We're going to go right back there. The book of Jonah opens up like this. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. It's a little bit of a template, but it begins normally as a prophetic book, but also begins strangely. Any other prophetic book honestly begins like this. If you flip over in your Bible to the next book, Mike, uh, to, uh, is it Micah? <laughs> almost said Amos. Micah, it's going to start. The word of the Lord came to Micah. The word of the Lord came to Isaiah. But what's so strange about this is this book begins with this opening template where you think Jonah's going to speak like a prophet, as prophets do on behalf of God. But instead of Jonah ever speaking about God or on behalf of God, Jonah opens up and tells you a humorous, comical, funny little story about a prophet who doesn't speak on behalf of God, but actually runs from God. And he runs away from people that he doesn't believe worthy of God. And so if we had a, I know we don't get it, and, and you've probably been taught even in, in, in your upbringing that you're not supposed to, the, the Bible's not humorous, it's always serious. This book is written in a comedic form. It's supposed to be funny. And because we don't read ancient Hebrew well, we don't get it. But if we had an 80s uh, laugh track, like an 80s sitcom, Full House, or, or something like that, we would have a laugh track behind this thing. And you would have already gotten a laugh track when it says the word of the Lord came to Jonah, ha ha ha, son of Amittai. And the reason is, is here's what Jonah's name means. Verse one is a setup. Here's a word that comes from a man who's never going to share it. And here's what this guy's name means. Jonah means dove. And his father's name means faithfulness. So he is dove as in innocence and peace-bearing, and bringing of good news. That's what a dove does, right? A dove comes in the form, the Holy Spirit comes in the form of a dove. The dove comes back to the ark saying, there's no longer a flood. Things are peaceful again. And he's also son of Amittai, meaning he's faithful to what he is supposed to do. So we're supposed to laugh at this point because this guy is everything but a dove, son of faithfulness. And you guys aren't laughing right? But that's what the point is. The other point of this of interest here in verse one that sets us up that is ironic is that Jonah's been on the scene before. We mentioned this a little bit last week, but I want to go back to it for just a second. If you know his backstory, you see how thick the irony is. Not only is this guy named Dove, son of faithfulness, but he's also a guy who shows up in second Kings chapter 14, 23 through 27. And you can go read that later. But there, he actually is faithful. In the story in, in 2 Kings 14, Jonah is shown to be a prophet who is prophesying to a king, a king named Jeroboam II or Jeroboam II. And Jeroboam is not a good king. He's horrible. He's named after one of the worst kings in Israel's history, Jeroboam, you guessed it, number one. 
Jeroboam number one was the son of Solomon who split the kingdom away from his brother Rehoboam, built his own temple in Samaria, and instead of putting one uh, false idol in that temple in the form of a golden calf like they did in Exodus, he puts two. He doubles the sin of Exodus chapter 32. And this king that Jonah is supposed to speak to is named after him, Jeroboam 2.0. And he's evil. But Jonah's message, if you read the text, is about one of favor. What's so interesting about the passage is Jonah goes on behalf of God, and in going on behalf of God, he's able to tell this evil king, hey, you know what God's going to do on your behalf? He's going to expand your kingdom back to where it was in the days of Solomon. He's going to show you favor and grace, even as you've shown him nothing but rebellion. Jonah's message to an awful king is actually, if you know the story of Jonah, full of irony. It's a message of grace to those who don't deserve it. But yet in his book that we're opening up here, he's now unwilling to share a message of grace to those who are unworthy. Let's pick it back up in verse two. So many details here. Well, here's what God tells him. Go to the great city or that great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. And you guys know this story, right? He's given a message. He's given a call. He's given a purpose. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed to Tarshish, which is really hard to say. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to do what? To flee from the Lord. So Jonah's called by God to a purpose and to a plan, to a goal and a calling. And instead of accepting the goal, Jonah gets another goal and his goal is to run, run far away. And this ancient, this map of the ancient world really explains it. Just look at this. You can see where Nineveh is, right? Up there on the far right side of the screen is where Nineveh is. It's right there. He's living up in here. He goes down to Joppa right there. And where is he heading? As far away as you could possibly believe. My mom would say he headed for Timbuktu, right? Anybody use that, that phrase back in the day? This is the furthest port that existed in the ancient world that they knew of. He literally goes to the edges of the earth. We call that the Straits of Gibraltar now, right? He goes as far from God. He doesn't just ignore God. He goes to take off and run from God. So the natural question to this that we all should be asking is, well, why would he run? Here's a guy who is faithfully, if we believe what's said in 2 Kings 14, he has faithfully already been a prophet of God. He's already given a message in a difficult place to an evil king. Why would he now run away from doing this? Well, it could be fear. I don't know what you would think of. It could be fear. If Syria, and, and y'all, if you want to just read some horrible news for some reason, because you've got a, a problem, look up how Assyria was described in the 6th, 7th, and 8th century BC. We still have their writings. Writings of Tiglath-Pileazar and Sennacherib, these kings of Assyria, and they were brutal. They often would work on skinning their enemies alive, head to toe. 
They were brutal. So maybe he's just fearful of that. Maybe it's any other reason. I don't know, but except we actually do know why. It wasn't that Jonah ran away because he didn't like the climate of where he was going to. It wasn't that there was no vacancy. It wasn't that he couldn't get an Uber donkey to get him there. He ran because he knew who God was. And he tells God that. Look at this. We're going to jump to the end of the book because this is going to set us up for the rest of our series for the summer. Jonah goes and finally, and we'll get into that if you don't know the story, he finally goes to Nineveh and he gives a five-word sermon. It's the most successful five-word sermon in the history of the world. The whole city, even the cattle, repent. Right? I've never seen that happen, but the cattle and the wild beasts put on sackcloth and ashes. Maybe we need that to happen, ranchers. I don't know what that looks like. We want the word of the Lord to move so powerfully out here that even our cattle are like putting ash on their head, right? Well, in response to this, God relents and does not bring disaster on Nineveh. And here's what we happens. And we find the why of Jonah. Why does Jonah run? Listen to this. When God saw what they did, they being the Ninevites, And how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Listen to this prayer. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you, are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love. He quotes Exodus 34, six and seven. A God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life for it is better for me to die than to live. So why does Jonah run? Why does he go this far? It's not because he's fearful. He runs from his call and his purpose because he knows that God, Yahweh, will find a way to redeem. He knows God enough to know that Yahweh loves to give mercy. He even repeats it in his prayer. You are faithful and compassionate, abounding in love. The most quoted verse in the Bible by the Bible, Jonah quotes right here. And that idea and that level of depth of love and mercy was too much for Jonah. So he runs away. And I want you to lean in with this because this is where we're going to pivot now. And we're going to let the story come from inside the house. We're going to let the story lean on us a little bit. Because just like Jonah, God comes to each one of us The invitation of good news, the invitation to follow Jesus like we talked about in class this morning is an offer of life. We often make the invitation of Jesus just to be an invitation of eternal life, but that's not it. It is a a kind of life that leads to eternal life. It is both and. Jesus isn't out there handing out tickets. He's handing out life. And the Bible does that throughout Deuteronomy Moses asks the people, what will you choose today? Will you choose life or death? Joshua does the same thing. Choose for yourselves this day 
who you will follow. And then Jesus comes along and says it in multiple ways, but maybe most clearly in John 10, where he says, I have come that my sheep or my people will have life and they will have life abundantly. So a way of looking at the scripture or the way of looking at the Christian life, and this is what I want you to lean in on, is a way of looking at this is we've all been called to a certain kind of life. If God has called you, if you are a saved person, if you are somebody who's been washed in the blood of Jesus, he has called you not just to be saved, but to live as if you are saved. But the problem is, just like Jonah, with just you and I, and this is huge, is that Yahweh's vision for our life, God's vision for our life, and our vision of our own life often do not match up, do they? Often they do this, or they do this. Amen? I know it is in my life. Rarely am I going, yes, whatever you ask. Jesus calls us to follow him in his way. What's he say about himself? I am not only truth and life, but he says what? I am the way. In other words, he has a vision for the way our life, a calling for our life. But we often go, no, I don't want to do that. And we could give hundreds of examples of how those callings don't add up. God calls us to love our neighbor, and we go, no way, that's too awkward. God calls us to forgive each other, and we say, no, 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 not doing that. God calls us to be servants and to put ourselves below. God calls us to make room for children, and we say, they're annoying, right? And that's the point of this book. See, Jonah's vision for his life ran into God's vision for his life, and he's like, I'm not doing it. I'm going as far west as I can go. We'll point the right direction. West. <laughs> I'm going as far west as I can go. I'm taking off to Tarshish. But here's the point. This is the point of Jonah. And it's the point of our life too because when God offers us life, I believe Jesus. And I don't wanna just believe in it. I wanna believe Jesus. You with me? When Jesus says, I've come that... You can have a way of life and have a life abundantly. Do we believe that? And here's what Jonah's doing. It's on the screen here. Jonah believes and thinks he is running for his life, to save his life. He's actually running, running from his life. Because there's only life found in the purpose and calling of Jesus Christ. Not anywhere else. And this is where that story starts stomping on our toes, doesn't it? Or aiming right at our hearts. This isn't just about a man named Jonah. This, this is where the story, you, you've heard that thing where scripture, we don't just read it, it reads us. Because we all run from our lives. We all run from the call. We're all Jonah at some point or another or multiple times in our life that when God's vision for our life competes with our own wants and our desires and our preferences. We run. But I don't want to just focus on that. I want, to, I want to give us some positives today. 
I don't think we need to focus on all the ways this morning and beat ourselves down and say, yeah, this is how we run from our callings. I want to dig in and talk this morning as we wrap up just about how we can run to our callings. I want us to be a church that starts to think, hey, not, what, not, not this question of how much can I get by and still, my, still be called a Christian. That's what a lot of us kind of gauge our Christianity on. What if we became a church where we said, what all can I do to make sure that I'm looking like Jesus in every situation? I don't want to run from my call. I want to run to my call. And I want to give you three things that it looks like that way. And the reason we're going to do that is, guys, often we mess this up at church. You don't get closer to Christ by spending time with the devil, right? You don't get closer to God by saying, I'm gonna figure out how to beat the devil first. No, you run to Jesus, right? In other words, you don't drive to Dallas from the panhandle by going to Austin first or Kansas City or Amarillo first. It's out of the way. So what we need to do is run toward our call, no matter where we're at. And I believe this church, before we get into these three things, I believe everybody in here has a call. It's not a phone call. I believe everybody in here, and David already said it, we are all ministers. Man, when I had a youth room of my own, I used to have a banner above the outside door that I'd make the kids slap like they were Notre Dame, play like a champion today, you know? But it said, you are a minister. Go out and be one. Go serve somebody. Go love somebody. And that is the truth of scripture. One of the things I love about the churches of Christ is we have always taught, and maybe we've let go of this, let it slip through our fingers. We have always believed in the priesthood of all believers, that all people who follow Jesus, Jesus gives them a call to change the world. So let's run towards our call. And number one, how do we do that? Is here's what Jonah wasn't doing. And here's what we need to do. We need to get surprised by grace again and again and again. If grace has not surprised us in a while, it's probably not active in our life. I think it's safe to assume here that Jonah knew about God's grace, right? He'd already talked about it with Jeroboam II. God is gonna give you favor. That was grace. There's no doubt he knew about it. He even quotes God's nature in the passage we just looked at in Jonah 4. You are this kind of God. I knew you were gonna do this. I knew you were that gracious, God. But guys, in church, knowing God's grace and being active in it are two very different things, aren't they? In the 1990s, there was this woman named Rosaria Butterfield. Great name, Rosario Butterfield. She was a tenured, she's still alive today. I want to tell her story. She was a tenured professor of English and, and women's studies. Very intelligent. She had helped out at that time in her life with, already, with, with helping 43 other people write their dissertation. She was smart. She was working at Syracuse University in New York in the 90s. She wanted to write a new book. She'd kind of, she got tenure. She wanted to keep writing. She had published a lot. And the title of her, her working title of this new book that she wanted to write was this. Why do people like you hate people like me? And the book was aimed at Christians. The why do you people like you, Christians, hate people like me, Rosario Butterfield? who was at the time an outspoken feminine lesbian activist. 
And she wanted to know, why was it that you hold me with such contempt? She was intelligent. She was smart. She had a supporting group in the 90s before the LGBTQ plus uh, movement really got off the ground. She was the leader of these types of things. She was outspoken. So in research for her book, she put out an article that got picked up nationwide. It was a back page, full page article that appeared in USA Today, the New York Times and the Washington Post, among many others. And the title that was given to this article that was kind of a setup for her book, the title given that was Why the Promise Keeper's Message is Dangerous to American Democracy. Now, if you remember the 90s, you remember how triggering that kind of an article would have been. You got, who, who remembers Promise Keepers, right? Brad, a few guys, right? In the 90s, the Promise Keepers was the largest ministry and revival ministry for men across the country. It was led led and started by the head coach of Colorado football at the time, who won a couple national titles. And it was a movement calling men back to Christ. And she wrote this article about why it was the greatest threat to democracy in the U.S. So as you can imagine, that started a little bit of a firestorm. Now, this was before that there was internet There was internet, but it wasn't used like it was today. It wasn't the hellhole that it is today. It was just out there. So instead of people sending DMs and emails and all that stuff, people flooded her actual physical mailbox, kids. That's a thing that you go out to and you pick mail out of, right? It flooded her mailbox. And she she decided, I'm going to read every one of these letters that I get. And she started to organize them. And week after week, she'd get more and more of these letters, and she'd organize them into two piles. They either love me or they hate me. (laughs) They either love me or they hate me. It was all in response to how she felt about the promise keepers. So she was sorting mail one day, and one day she received a letter, and she looked at the return address, and the return address was actually from her town. And then she looked at the street, and she knew that street because it was just around the corner. So she'd gotten a letter from somebody in her neighborhood and she opened it up and she read it. And this letter was from a minister, a preacher in town. And after she read it, she looked at her two piles and she didn't know where to put it. It wasn't a letter destroying her and it wasn't a letter affirming her. It was a letter engaging her. It was from a guy named Ken Smith. And at the bottom of the letter, I don't know what Ken Smith wrote there, but at the bottom of the letter, he, he left his phone number and he said, call me, let's get dinner sometime. Let's go out and talk a little bit more. And so Rosario decided to take him up on it. And she said, and what I was listening to her talk about, she said, I didn't take him up on it because I was somehow interested in the Christianity he was spouting. His letter did knock me off kind of my stance I had a little bit. But she said, I, I went to dinner with him because I thought, well, I'm trying to write a book about Christians. Here's an unpaid research assistant. (laughs) I don't have to pay this dude. I can find a lot out about him. But month after month and week after week, Ken Smith and his wife and Rosario started to get together. They had hard conversations, deep conversations. They tried to understand each other. They read the Bible together. She had read the Bible before she had a lot of questions. She was reading it for research at the time. But here's what Rosario said. She said, as they continued to engage in that, she realized that Ken Smith and his interaction with, her interaction with him was so different than she'd ever experienced that the Lord started to work on her. 
It wasn't love, as in affirmation. It wasn't hate, as in you're an awful person. It was love, as in God has a plan. A third way of Jesus started to stand out. And one night, Rosario says something changed. It was hard for her to put her finger on this for many years, but looking back on these years in the 90s into the early 2000s, Ken asked her this one question, and it wasn't a question about what do people think about you. He asked her one question. They were wrapping up dinner one night over at Ken's house, and he said, Rosario, before we get together again, I want you to think about this. I want you to come back with an answer next time we get together, and it's an answer to this question. What do you think Jesus thinks about you? What do you think Jesus thinks about you, Rosario? And Rosario says that changed everything for her. It surprised her. All of a sudden, grace jumped into her life because all of a sudden she wasn't basing Christianity on what she saw from American Christians who could often be hypocritical and judgmental. And she wasn't basing her thoughts on Christ coming from all her friends and academia. She was judging Christianity based on what Jesus said about her. And it surprised her. And it wasn't just a few months later that she left everything. Her job, her position, her friendships, her lesbian lover to follow Jesus. She's been a follower of Jesus now for 26 years. See, grace has got to surprise us again, church. We need to get surprised by it again. When we throw stones, we're not letting grace surprise us. And it surprises us because, first of all, because in spite of all your sin, you got to eat bread and blood today. And in spite of all those people in your life that you consider enemy, unforgivable, unworthy, God loves them. And we've got to let grace surprise us again. The second thing I think we've got to do is we've got to learn to go to the source of grace. If we're going to return to the call, we've got to go back to the source of the call. I've already told this story once. I can't even remember where it was. It may have been on a Sunday morning, but I'm going to tell it again. It was just a couple weeks ago. It's so good. It comes from family worship night a few Wednesdays ago. We had this amazing worship experience together tonight that a lot of you skip for some reason. I don't understand. You should be here on Wednesdays when we do that. It's awesome. We had these cups of water and we were supposed to go around with these cups and fill other people's cups and encouragement and love. And there was this one little girl that was sitting right down there, right in front of you, Susie. And she was a visitor kid. Her mom was back there in friend speak, learning English as a second language. Her little, her, her, her name was Vanessa. I think she's about a fourth or fifth grader. And the challenge was just to go around and encourage each other and fill each other's cup up and say something nice to them. But Vanessa, this little girl, man, she got it. 
What Vanessa did was keep going to the source. She'd go around and she was short enough just to be about cup heights for all the adults. So she was just watching everybody's cup and she would notice if anybody's cup was just getting a little low and she would just come up and she'd say, your cup's looking a little low. And she'd put, give a little more water. And then when she ran out, she'd come right up here and we had a five gallon bucket of water and she'd fill back up. She'd go to the source. Over and over and over again, she did that that night. And she made sure nobody else's cup ran out. That's what Jonah's missing. This is what's happening here in Jonah. A call. A call, guys, in your life from God can come as an inspiration But too often we want it just to be this lightning bolt moment. We all want Paul on the road to Damascus. But I don't think a call often happens that way. I think for most of us, and what we miss is some of us, instead of us learning about our call, we just wait on this miraculous moment to happen. And what we ought to be doing is simply going, you know where the biggest call and the biggest purpose, if you're missing purpose from God in your life, where you get it is you keep going back to the source. Over and over and over. You keep going to the Lord. You keep spending time with him. You guys know this, right? I'm gonna, I'm gonna step on a couple toes here. This isn't in my notes. I'm stepping outside my notes for a little bit to step on your toes. All right. Your level of boredom in here this morning is directly connected to your level of connection with God this morning. <laughs> Thank you. It is. It is. Your level of connection to this church family is directly related to your connection to Yahweh. You want to call, go to the source. You know how I got into ministry? I started going to the source. Am I special? Absolutely not. Did God have some special? He set me apart from birth. Nope, <laughs> he didn't. I started going to the source. And I got to go back over and over and over. And then finally, We not only go to the source and we not only let grace surprise us, but if we're gonna run towards our call, we gotta see people different. Jonah was seeing the Ninevites with his eyes. How dare God have have grace on those kind of people? But he needed to start to see people with his eyes. Cody Matthews reminded me of this the other day. It's a truth that he's listened to, that we both listen to the same guy. And if you really wanna know in one sentence, what Jonah's about. And Cody, thank you for this. Cody said, Jonah's about people have potential. So we gotta see them with our hearts. Because with our eyes, they look like they're awful or they look like I'll never like them or I'll never get along with them. And God says, oh, they've got potential. And the Ninevites were evil, violent, And Jonah goes, no way they deserve your grace. And God goes, they've got potential. People in your life, guys, when you get running towards your calling God, you start to see people different. You start to work on seeing people with your heart and you go, I don't even know how that's ever gonna happen, how this person's ever gonna get close to Jesus. But I'm gonna see him with my heart the heart of God. I got a hold of uh, Monty Tuttle, our, our EEM guy this week. 
And I said, Monty, I'm, I'm preaching from Jonah. Tell me some good news out of Ukraine. Tell me what's going on there. And you guys know EEM started in Ukraine. It started there distributing. It was the first major country to take on and say, we'll distribute Bibles for you. And he sent me just this short story, and I'm going to tell it just in my own words instead of Monty's. But he said, I'll tell you a great story. Our director of EEM, the guy that distributes and makes sure Bibles get in children's hands and all that, his name is Sasha, and his son is named Vanya. And Sasha and Vanya, when the shelling started, they live in Kiev, or Kiev. And when the shelling started months ago, you guys remember that, right? That all started when Mon- that, they, that started the Wednesday before Monty was here for, for Mission Sunday. Y'all remember that? And Monty, Monty gave me this great update that Sasha and Vanya are still in Kiev. And the warehouse where the Bibles are, 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 are at hasn't been shelled one time. And after the shelling started, they just kept doing it. They kept going back. They kept just going back to the warehouse over and over and over again. And every time they'd go there, they'd pick up a pallet and they'd go find some people fleeing or they'd find a line of refugees and they'd take them food and they'd take them money and they'd take them whatever and then they would wait. And in the first few months, or first few weeks, sorry, of the shelling, horrible things that's happening over there, 16,000 people they met said, we would like a Bible too. 16,000. And he also said now that they're doing humanitarian aid in Poland and on the border, they've now received over 200,000 requests in Russian and in Ukrainian for scripture. See, you could just see those people as like, just on the run. But EEM says, we're going to see them with the eyes of the Lord. We're going to let God not remove us from our call, but we're going to run towards our call. We're going to move our lives towards our call and say, my call never ends. The only time your call will ever end is if Jesus comes back or you die. And then you get to receive your reward. May we be a people who, unlike Jonah, become the people who say, we're not going to run to Tarshish. The world's getting tough. It's harder to be a Christian in America. Yep. We still have a call. May we be a people who run towards our call. If you need anything this morning, we're here for you. Let's stand and sing.